Well, our worship continues as we turn our attention to the Word of God. I trust you have your scriptures with you. I'm going to the first book of Samuel, 1 Samuel for our scripture reading, 1 Samuel and the 12th chapter, and reading from verse 16 down to the end of verse 25. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and breaking into the chapter at verse 16. The chapter has to deal, of course, with uh, uh, Samuel's farewell address. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Sir Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you will still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. May God bless to us this portion of his word this morning. Let us pray together. All praise to him, the God of light, who formed the mountains by his might. All praise to him who names the stars that sing his fame in skies afar. All praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above. Yet 
bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. Our Father, we come to worship you. We come to bring our praise to you and our thanksgiving. To know that you are here and that to bless us. For you are the one who has directed our footsteps to this place this morning. And we recognize, O oh God, that nothing is hidden to you. That many of us here, because we rejoice that this is the day that the Lord has made, that we might worship together in community, as a congregation, as your people together. And so we were glad when they said unto us, let, let us go into the house of the Lord. And so, our Father, we, we rejoice that we are here, that we might sing your praises together, that we might listen to your word, that we might respond to you in humble submission and adoration. And yet, our Father, you see that there are in the midst those who are here may be out of tradition. Or maybe they've been coaxed into coming. They'd rather be 101 other places than here. But they're here. And you have brought them here. That they might know you, an awesome God. That they and we together might recognize that you are a God who is almighty to be delighted in but also to be feared. For you are the God who knows all about us, our going out and our coming in. You have heard the words that we have spoken this past week. You have known the thoughts that we have entertained. And therefore, our Father, as we come in worship and praise and thanksgiving, we also come with confession that you will pardon all our sin that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we may not fail to hear what your Spirit would say to us through your word this morning. And again, our Father, for those who are not with us, some are ill, some are traveling. We ask, O oh God, for each one, that you would be to them what they need, that they too might acknowledge you in all their ways, whether that be on the bed of sickness, whether that be traveling, whether that be a time of sorrow or grief, but that they might know you, the true and the living God, who is sufficient for them, that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, they might know your presence, they might enjoy that peace which passes all understanding. And so, our Father, we pray for them. And we pray for the furtherance of the gospel in our world, that it might run with power. We thank you that you are building your church, O Christ, that you are the head of the church, and that you are building it, and it will be altogether glorious for your eternal praise and glory. So hear our prayers, and attend to us now, we ask. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, Give us minds to understand and give us wills to do 
your will. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Come with me once again to this 23rd Psalm as we continue to uh, look and consider and apply these gracious words to ourselves this morning. And this morning we come to those words, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What picture is being presented to us here? What truth is being taught here? And what application can we make from these words? Well, my outline this morning is simply this. My three points, number one, that there is no task more concerning to the shepherd, and there is no track more challenging to the sheep, and there is no truth more comforting to the saints than what we find in these simple words. There is no task more concerning to the shepherd. What is that task? It is the leading of his sheep. For this, this is his calling. This is what he has been commissioned to do, to lead, to guide, to guard, to direct, to provide, and to protect his sheep. So where has our shepherd been this week? Did you trace his steps? Did you hear his voice? Did you sense his presence? For the truth is, my dear Christian brother and sister, he was right in front of you. He was right in front of us all the moments, minutes, hours, and days of this past week. He has come in order to lead us. And so how does the shepherd lead his sheep? Tenderly, thoroughly, and triumphantly. He leads them tenderly. I'm referring to the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40 and verse 11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Of the words of Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are 
dust. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows what we're made of. He is acquainted with our weaknesses and our weariness. He is aware of our suffering and our sorrows. He is awake to our abilities and disabilities. He hears our laughter. He knows our longings. And he knows his sheep personally and individually. And he is constantly, consistently, compassionately, carefully gauging and weighing and measuring and dispensing what is right and good and perfect for us and to us. Now, we may feel at times that life is unfair, that we have been dealt uh, cards that uh, have been stacked up against us, that, that everything has becoming, become just far too much and we just, we just wish this world could stop and that we could get off. But listen, my dear friends, we were never designed to walk this world alone. We were made by God and for God in order that we might know him and enjoy him forever. And so those strange things that at times happen to us, happen to us in order that we may be driven into the arms of our shepherd, in order that we might find his grace sufficient for us, and his strength enabling to us, and his presence assuring us. You see, one of the lessons that we learn in the psalm is simply this. Don't expect to find in other sheep that which you can only find in the shepherd. Sadly, to quote the hymn writer, the arm of flesh will fail you and you dare not trust your own. We are to look to the good and the great and the chief shepherd, for he is gentle and lowly, and he leads tenderly. And moreover, he leads thoroughly. He leads thoroughly. The words of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. The writer said, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Note those words, the pioneer of salvation. Now, now here, here in Australia, we, uh, we learn about and we read about the, uh, the early pioneers. You know, you go up to Ballarat and you go to Sovereign Hill, you want to see how the early pioneers lived and, 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 and got on and so forth. 
We're speaking about those who have gone ahead of us. And in Hebrews, the word here, pioneer, points to one who begins something in order that others may enter into it. He begins something which will be a benefit to those who follow. And this progressive action is recorded again in chapter 2 of Hebrews, but this time in verses 14 through 15. Let me read them to you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's gone before us. He's opened the way for us. That by the grace of God, our shepherd tasted death for us. So the death for us is now, to use the word of the psalmist, death for us now is simply a shadow of its former self. And so those words he leads me, assures me of his ability and his sufficiency to achieve his purpose for me and his plan for me, that nothing is lacking in his salvation of me, and nothing is lacking in his ability to take me from here right home to glory. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, God spared not his son, but freely gave himself up for us all, and with him freely gave us all things. And the meaning there, the intent there, he has given us all things necessary and needful for us to get home to the Father's house. He has saved us for eternity. So John in the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and verse 17 says, For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He leads us, my dear friends, tenderly. And he leads us thoroughly. And thus he leads his sheep triumphantly. The words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphant procession. What's Paul getting at here with these words? Well, the people of Corinth would have recognized the picture right away. They would have understood clearly what Paul was getting at here. For these, these terms, these words, depict a, a victorious Roman general returning from battle, riding in his chariot, leading a whole procession of other chariots and soldiers. 
And a large crowd, of course, has gathered and they're, they're cheering and they're, they're shouting. And they're looking at the general and wonder. And then staring at the great number of prisoners chained to his chariot and being dragged along the road to their great digression, humiliation, and shame. That's the picture that Paul records. However, the difference is, Paul doesn't see humiliated, defeated enemies. He sees Christ's prisoners being brought, not reluctantly or shamefully, but freely, willingly, rejoicingly attached to the chariot of victory. They are part of the train of Christ's victory and triumph. And they're bound to his chariot, but not with chains. They're bound to his chariot with cords of love. For we, his people, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And thus George Matheson wrote in his lovely hymn, Make me a captive lord. And then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and then shall conquer thee. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Our shepherd leads us tenderly, and thoroughly and triumphantly. For there is no task more concerning to the shepherd than leading and guiding his sheep. But then add to that that there is no track more challenging to the sheep. That is to walk in the paths of righteousness. Now, the words of this second point of my sermon, I use that word track rather than path, because that, that word which we're acquainted with is, is, is a, a better and a more accurate understanding of the term that David employs, because the scene here is not a pleasant one. You see, in reality, the term relates more to something like the Kokoda track than the footpath outside your home. And it means that the track of the righteous is oftentimes rigorous. Rigorous. And we see this illustrated through, through Scripture. Think of the track that Joseph had to walk. Sold into slavery, falsely charged by part of his wife, imprisoned, and then eventually released and promoted. But for many, many years, it, that, that track that he was walking was one of hardship 
and disappointment. The object of jealousy, of bitterness, of rage, of false accusation. But what was the conclusion? Genesis 45. What does he say to his brethren? God sent me ahead of you. This was the path of righteousness. God meant it for good. For many, many years it didn't seem good. It didn't appear righteous. But it was. Or think of Job. What track did this man have to walk? Well, he was, we're told, a righteous man. He was a family man. He was a prosperous man. And yet by the sword and storm, he loses his family. He loses his farm. He loses his fortune. And he loses his fitness. No, oh, yes, he makes that, that grand and glorious confession. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But don't stop there. Keep reading the book. The Job falls before the black dog that Churchill used to describe depression. Job goes deep into depression. Until at one point he cries out, why was I not still born? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Yet in God's providence, after the great trial on that track, Job is abundantly blessed by God. Let me give you one further example. Someone else who had to walk this track, the path of righteousness. Think of the apostle John. Think of John's walk. You know, he had, he had those wonderful early years with, with our Lord. He was the one, wasn't he, who leaned on Jesus' breast. He was the one the son entrusted his mother to. And then he became the, the faithful pastor at, at Ephesus, the author of five New Testament books. Surely we can say that John had been a righteous man, clearly on the paths of righteousness, that it was being fruitful, he was being faithful, everything was just falling into place for him. And so the, the time comes, as it were, when uh, maybe he looks forward to retirement. Play a game of golf or two. You know, maybe, maybe spend some time and go fishing. Or maybe can use the, use the future years to go traveling. I'm tempted to say that John's story is an Irish story. It's not an American one. You know, because American stories always end up, they lived happily ever after. Irish stories always end up things going terribly wrong. And this was John. Because... Around AD 95, John, after all that glorious experience in life, John is exiled to Patmos, the penal colony 
surrounded by convicts and crooks. And here he has to live in this small, rocky, barren place. And yet it was there amidst all those rigorous conditions that John sees Jesus in all his glory, in all his splendor, in all his sovereignty. And the church has been forever grateful and encouraged by the revelation of Jesus Christ with its stirring message, the Lamb wins. What's the truth here? Surely it's this. The path of the righteous may not always seem right to us. That the track that we are on may not be paved with pleasure or peace or prosperity. William Cooper, the great hymn writer who lived most of his life in torment of mental instability, said this. Life was like scrambling always in the dark among rocks and precipices without a guide, but with an enemy ever at my heels, prepared to push me headlong. And yet, the good shepherd was near Cooper because he penned these remarkable words that the church has been singing ever since. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. My dear brother and sister in Christ, fresh courage take. Yes, the track of the righteous is oftentimes rigorous. And Peter says we're not to think it strange when the going is tough and tearful. But never forget, while the track of the righteous is often rigorous, yet it is always, always right. It is the path of righteousness. Because it has been cut out for you personally. The path you're on has been cut out for you particularly by the one who is altogether righteous. He will never do us wrong. He will never mistreat us. And though at times his ways to us seem mysterious and misunderstood by us, they are always moral and holy and just and good and eternal. And the guarantee of that comes at the close of verse 3 of Psalm 23, where I want you to see thirdly and finally that there is no truth more comforting for the saints than this. For his name's sake. Let me ask you this morning. What is your eternal hope 
and assurance anchored in. What, what foundation stabilizes your faith? Here is the Bible's answer. The reputation of the shepherd. Listen to the words of Ezekiel, chapter 36. And I'm reading from verse 20 to 22. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said about them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they had to leave his land in exile. Then I had concern for my holy name, while the house of Israel profaned. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, but for my holy name. I will honor the holiness of my great name. What truths stand behind these words? Christopher Wright and his commentary on Ezekiel puts it this way. Picture the Israelite prisoners of war arriving in Babylon, an exile. And local people would ask each other, who, who are these people? Israelites from the land of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar has captured their city and deported the survivors. All right, what's the name of their God then? And somebody else answers, oh, uh, Yahweh, or so I've heard. So they are Yahweh's people. But they have been expelled from Yahweh's land. Which, which simply means that, that Yahweh mustn't be much of a god, must he? That was the natural conclusion that was drawn in the ancient world. The defeat of a nation was regarded as the defeat of its God. And thus, with Israel being sent into exile, Yahweh was regarded as no better than any other national god defeated by Babylonian Babylonians and their gods. Disgrace to Israel meant disgrace to the name of Yahweh. His name, as it were, as far as the Babylonians was concerned, the name of Yahweh has been ruined. It's in tatters. Oh, it may mean almighty, but they'd say, yeah, but that's only a word. That's only a name. That means, that means nothing. He's been defeated. That's the conclusion being drawn. You see, it was for the reputation of God's name that Moses argued as he did in Numbers 14. Where the people have so sinned, God says he's going to blot out the whole people and he'll raise up a whole new nation through Moses. And Moses says, God, don't do that because the nations will think you are not able to bring them into the promised land. It's not good for your reputation, God. It's not good for your name. For you see, the name of God doesn't simply identify him 
It defines who he is and describes who he is. The Lord's name reveals his nature, his integrity, his ability, his fidelity, his purity. And so God is jealous for his name. That is, God is jealous for his reputation. And he works to ensure the glory of his name by fulfilling his purposes and by keeping his promises and by exercising his power. And so the good shepherd gathers his sheep and guides his sheep and guards his sheep, not because his sheep are good, but because he is good, the good shepherd. And he leads them along the track of righteousness because his very reputation as a shepherd is at stake. It's something we're acquainted with, isn't it? Why do you go to the doctor you go to? Why do you go to the financier that you go to? Why do you go to the solicitor that you go to? Because you've heard they've got a good reputation. They've got a good name. This is the concern of God. And this concern of God for the fame of his own name provides glorious reassurance to his sheep and great comfort to his people. Because God does all that he does so that his name will be praised and honored and hallowed and rejoiced in and held in high esteem. And God's preservation of his people is inseparably linked, my friends, to his eternal praise. You know, why does God persist with me? Why, why does he persist with you? Why does he restore our souls? Why does he lead us in the paths of righteousness? Why does he go with us into the great darkness? Why does his goodness and mercy follow us each day? Because of his own name and reputation. Because he's given his word. And it will not return unto him void. And thus the Lord's passion for his own name, its fidelity and integrity and glory undergirds and assures his children, the believer, of their eternal home and hope. That our redemption is rooted in his glorious reputation. Our salvation is from him, and it's through him, and it's to him, and so he will guide us, and he will guard us this week. Not because we are good, but because he is. And he has a name to uphold. He has a reputation at stake. He's concerned about the fame of his name. And isn't that echoed in the prayer the Lord told his disciples to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed 
be your name. It's primary. And so, my friends, may the the God-centeredness of the Good Shepherd capture our hearts and comfort our hearts and cheer our hearts for his jealousy for his name is our glorious assurance. His commitment to his name is our blessed assurance. The fame of God's name is the foundation of our faith. Why will we get home to glory? He's given his promise, and he'll keep it for his name's sake. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have great concern for your own glory. Father, when we get concerned about our name and our reputation, sometimes it shows our selfishness. But Father, you're without sin, without blemish, and therefore it is just and right that you do have a concern for your name. And we thank you, our Father, in order to exalt your name and receive praise, you will continue that work which you have begun in us, your children, until that day when with the hosts of angels round the throne, we will sing, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Cheer our hearts this morning, Father, and comfort us, we pray of you, and grant to us a stronger measure of hope for your praise and glory, world without end. Amen.